Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Uh, Before we get into this today... um... Last week, we discussed a little bit about where the money has gone that we've done this last year and what we've done and what God has achieved through these things. And uh, afterwards, I had, a, had one of our single moms come up to me afterwards and just was thanking me, and by doing that, you as a church, and said that, um, she said that we wouldn't have made it to February if it hadn't been for what the church did through the Inside Out uh, campaign over the holiday. Um, and I want you to be aware of that. I uh, had an email waiting for me uh, this morning. In the email, uh, just someone else had mentioned about, and they named names of specific people who had assisted them in the church in this past season of time and just said they would have fallen apart emotionally, could not have help, dealt with some of the issues they had to deal with this last year if it hadn't been for the help of, of some of you and, again, named names. Um, our people have been involved in the robotics program at Osborne High School. Uh, Osborne used to be the toughest neighborhood in Detroit. That has changed a bit, and in part due to the work of of this fellowship, um, as well as the efforts of many others. And so we've been involved in the robotics, and this is a picture they just had recently of one of their gatherings recently here. And I just really appreciate those of you who are in there and others who are not pictured in there, who have taken time out, engineers and other ones, to be a part of this. You can see about the size of the team. There's probably one or two kids that are missing in this. Um, robotics, for those of you who are not into this, this is like a whole weird subculture of its own, okay, uh, in this country. And in our area around here, uh, one of our schools um, has like 60 kids in their program or so. So when they show up at an event, they're showing as a group. So um, because of the association we had with some of our people, our robotics team from Osborne met with one of the local schools here just to kind of learn and encourage one another. And our kids here from Osborne were saying, well, they were introduced to it. They were saying, well, when's the rest of the teams, the other teams present going to be introduced? They didn't realize that this massive group of people was the team from this school. And that they were the only outsiders that were part of that. So the work that's being done, whether it's in this or mentoring students through reading or feeding kids in Guatemala or just a dozen different things we talked about, you guys have been a part of that. And I just wanted to share that briefly with you and just, again, just kind of recognize that. We've been in a series entitled The Rendering, and this is taken from a passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 22 where Jesus is faced um, by some people trying to trap him, and it's over taxes. And uh, they said, okay, here's, uh, you know, do we pay taxes or not? And it was a trick question. No matter which way he chose, they would have killed him. You know, if you don't pay taxes, the Romans are going to get you. If you do pay taxes, you're a tool of the governing elite. And so he asked for this coin and he asked to see the coin, which was a denarius. Uh, It was a silver coin that would have been worth a day's wages or so. And he says, whose image and subscription on this? And they they say unto him, Caesar's. Then he says, give unto them. He says then in in verse 21, render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. 
And so in this first one, we talked about flags and tables, flags being our opinions, tables being where we gather to discuss those things, that our flags, our opinions should never overshadow our tables. We should always be willing to discuss with one another, whether those are political opinions or something else. And that above all, no flag should rise above the table of the Lord, the one where communion is gathered, where we're in fellowship with one another. Whatever your political view, whatever your, your position on any issue of any kind, it should never overshadow what it means to gather as brothers and sisters. Last week we talked about time and treasure and we used the widow's mite, another coin, and how Jesus watched what she put in and um, what we do with our time, what we do with our treasure and some of the meanings behind that. And so today I wanna talk to you a little deeper. If the first one had to do with flags and tables, opinions and our allegiance or our loyalties, and the other one has to do with how that's expressed through our giving and through our time, today as we talk about bread and circuses, I wanna talk about the lordship of Christ. I wanna talk to you about what does this mean in our private life? Um, Where do we take these things? How does it affect the depth of who we are? Not just our time and our treasure, not just what we do, but those hidden parts of our heart that nobody else sees. The government gets my taxes. Uh, Some of them get my vote. What I do in my private life is my own affair. We're very American about that. Do we carry that same thinking over where God's concerned? In the time of Rome, in the time of Jesus, and we've been talking a little bit about his politics, not his personally per se, his was the kingdom of God. It was a completely transcendent concept, but he dealt with a lot of political situations. It was a time of struggle and strife. At the time that he was operating, it is estimated that the number of proportion of slaves in Roman society was roughly around 30 to 40%. In other words, 30 to 40% of the people who populated Rome were in fact slaves. Now, it wasn't the racial slavery that was the unique American experience. Um, It cut across racial lines. In fact, the term slave actually comes from my people group. Uh, Czechoslovaks or Slovaks, the Slavs. The Romans had captured so many Slavs in combat and in battle that had turned them into slaves that before long people were talking about their Slavs and the word migrated into slaves. But at the time of Jesus, 30 to 40% of the population were these slaves whether they're of Slavic background or some other type. Understand what that would mean if one in three people were of this underclass. And that's not even including the lower class of society, just the slave class. Rome had a real scare by a guy named Spartacus. How many of you have heard the name? Okay, how many of you have seen the movie? All right. You know, the, the, the classic thing in this, well, well, we'll touch on that in a minute. Anyways, he was a Thracian gladiator um, who had served in the Roman army, and he became the leader of a slave rebellion. Uh, it began at this uh, gr- uh, um, uh, gladiatorial school in Capua, and it started there. It spread to the countryside, and before long, he had slaves from all over the place that were flooding into his army. In addition to slaves, he had a number of freedmen. This isn't mentioned too often. Common laborers, in other words, your, your uh, minimum wage guys have also said, we're fed up with this, we're done with the overclass, and they joined the rebellion as well. At one time, there was between 70 and 120,000 men in this army, and that's not including the hangers-on that were on the edges of it. Seven to 120,000 people. Amazingly, this slave army, this rebellion, defeated two Roman armies in secession, defeated them in 73 BC. This terrified the Romans. 
It completely and utterly terrified them. The idea that there could be a slave rebellion, let alone that it could defeat two of the mightiest armies of, of, of the history of, of the world, scared them to death. It was finally crushed as Rome gathered all its forces together in 71 BC, just a bare under 100 years from the time of Christ. Spartacus actually fell in the battle. I hate to mess it up for those of you that saw the movie. Because you know, the classic thing is they're looking for Spartacus because they want to crucify him. So who's Spartacus? If you give him up, then you all will be spared. And just as Kirk Douglas is getting ready to stand up, then suddenly a, a, a Tony Curtis stands up instead. I am Spartacus. And then before long, others, I am. And there's a little wimpy guy. I am Spartacus. You're like, let me believe that. You know, it's like, you know. <laughs> and, and, and Kirk Douglas has this tear in his eyes. They all stand for him and everything else like that. Truth of the matter, he died in the battle but the 6,000 survivors were crucified over miles of road that century ran into Rome Central. So imagine 6,000 bodies crucified up and down 696 or I-75. The Romans were terrified of their slaves, but they also were going to get across the point in a forceful way. You screw with Rome, you die. Don't mess with us. It was about control. It was about power. Now, that's for context. There's an additional piece of context you have, and it's the title of our message here today, Bread and Circuses. I don't know how many of you have heard the phrase, and those of you who have heard the phrase, if you understand the context. It has to do with this fear of not only slaves, but of the underclass as a whole. It has to do with how we handle them. In a political context, the phrase means to generate public approval, to get their approval and their acquiescence, not by excellence, in public service or public policy, but by diversion, distraction, or by satisfying the most immediate or base requirements of a populace, by offering what's referred to as a palliative, and for example, food and entertainment, or actually bread and circuses. They actually passed a law um, to keep the votes of poorer citizens by introducing what was referred to as a grain dole. And so they would make sure that everyone had their bread, that everyone had um, their daily portion of things. And this was one way of keeping them satiated and satisfied and sedated to some degree. Um, around 200 AD, looking back at this time period in history, there was a Roman satirist called Juvenal, and he lamented that the Roman emperors, masters of the known world, tenuously maintained political power by way of bread and circuses. This is the first reference and to this ancient practice of pandering to Roman citizens by providing free wheat and costly circus spectacles. Caesar Augustus, for example, boasted at one time of feeding more than 100,000 men from his personal granary. He also boasted of putting on tremendous exhibitions. These are his words, quote, three times I gave shows of gladiators under my name and five times under the name of my sons and grandsons. In these shows, about 10,000 men fought and many of them would have died. 26 times under my name or that of my sons and grandsons, I gave the people hunts of African beasts in the circus, in the open or in the amphitheater. In them, about 3,500 beasts were killed I gave the people a spectacle of a naval battle in the place across the Tiber where the Grove of the Caesars is now with the ground excavated in length 1,800 feet and width 1,200 in which 30 beaked ships that we've been used for rams, biremes and triremes, in other words, two-level or three-level ships, 
But many smaller even fought amongst themselves. In these ships, about 3,000 men fought in addition to the rowers. By the time of Jesus and the reign of Tiberius Caesar, the Roman grain dole routinely fed over 200,000 people in Rome alone. There was one point in time where the writer put it this way. He said, uh, lamenting what had taken place, that long ago, for when we sold our vote to no man, we were a republic and we stood for things and, and we debated stuff. He says, when we sold our vote to no man, the people have abdicated our duties. For the people who once upon a time handed out military command and high civil office, legions, everything now restrains itself and anxiously hopes for just two things, bread and circuses. In other words, there was a time when as a people we did great things, but now all we worry about is being fed and being entertained. We're told that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is led by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and he said, if you're the son of God, if you're really powerful, tell these stones to become what? Bread. Jesus answered, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple in Jerusalem. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you. Lift up your hands, that you're not going to strike your foot against a stone. Give us a spectacle. Jesus answered, it's also written, don't put your Lord God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. Recognize my power. He says, away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Um, that line I just read, for it is written. I wonder if you could just repeat that line with me, if we could do that together. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Serve him what? Only. Serve him what? Only. 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 What was transacting? Well, there's many things that were transacting in this process, but one of the things with the context that you now have of the historical setting is that the devil was daring Jesus to be a king of bread and circuses. He offered him dominion over the whole earthly world, and these temptations would have been instantly recognizable reference to the power of the Roman emperors. Bread, spectacle, power. Jesus forcefully re rejects this, and his rejection illustrates that the things of God and the things of Rome, the things of the world, the things of Satan, are mutually exclusive that Jesus' allegiance was to the things of God and the things of God only. This is part of what was transacting in this time in this place. Bread, circuses, feed us, spectacle. I'm not going to show you all the passages. Take a look at John chapter 6 when you have an opportunity. John chapter 6, Jesus is, is on this mountaintop and, and thousands have followed him because of all the healings and all the spectacles they'd seen. And so they come and they gather. And it says in verse six, sometime after this, Jesus had crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. And then in parentheses, it says, that is the Sea of Tiberias. That's significant. 
The Sea of Galilee, you see, um, on the shore of it, Herod Antipas had built a city in honor of Caesar, the Tiberius Caesar, and named it Tiberius. No, no honest Jew would enter into that city if they could avoid it. They certainly wouldn't reside there. It was a pagan city given up to an offer of, of worship to the emperor. Because of the city and its significance, the Sea of Galilee for a season of time was referred to as the Sea of Tiberias. Note that. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he'd performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountainside, sat down with his disciples, and at one point in time after he's done teaching, everyone's hungry, and, and so he, he does a miracle and feeds 5,000 plus people with bread and fishes. When the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. You give us bread? You're, you're feeding us? You're supplying our needs? We'll make you king. The emperor supplies? No, you're, you, you're, this is, we're going to make you king. And he withdraws. Now he withdraws because he's withdrawing from that political situation that's existing. He's also withdrawing because it was his habit to withdraw after he had been engaged with the crowd to reconnect in quietness with his father. People looking around, what happened to him? Well, his disciples, they crossed the, the Sea of Galilee in a boat. He takes a different route. So they're in the boat and a storm's coming up. And he walks across the water to connect. And we won't take time on this, but it's of interest that right after doing the bread thing, he's now walking on what? The Sea of Galilee, who it's also referred to as the Sea of what? Tiberius. The emperor's water. But Jesus shows dominance over the emperor's domain. You can call it the Sea of Tiberius all you want. But Jesus walks on it. People are saying, where's he at? And so they realize and hear that he's on the other side. So they find him on the other side and, and says, when did you get here? And Jesus answers in verse 26, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, but not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill, you had your bread. He says, you should be doing the work of God. And so they say, well, what's, what's the work of God? Not because they're serious, but whatever will happen to placate you so you give us more bread. And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent to believe in the one he has sent. He then begins to teach them that his body is going to become bread for them, that he's going to be the one that's going to give them nourishment and life, that by his sacrifice, and it gets to be weird for them, and, and twilight zone and they stop following him. They say, forget this, this is weird. And so the 5,000 walk away. But not only the 5,000, his other disciples who are with him, all of them walk away except for the twelve. He says, from this time, they turned back and no longer followed him. He turns to the 12. He says, you don't want to leave too, do you? And Simon Peter answers, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of Israel, that you're the only one of Israel. I, I'd shown you two different coins, the denarius and the uh, um, uh, widow's mite. I'm going to show you one now. Very geeky thing, Okay. Uh, some of you who have been on the uh, uh, Lord of the Rings stuff will, will appreciate this, but total geek gig. But in the Lord of the Rings, there's a ring that is the ring of power. It, it, it subverts anyone who has it, but it also gives them ultimate power. And that's what these coins were about. All coins for the most part. But, so this is actually a New Zealand coin. Flipped over, we see the ring. Precious! <laughs> it subverts 
It's about power. That's what it is. The money we have is the power to do things, to change the world around us, to indicate things. But for the Roman emperors, it was an expression of their power. It was an expression of who they were, and it was their way of of manipulating and controlling things. Jesus makes it clear that he's not going to be a part of that. The last two weeks, we've talked about your loyalty, of your opinions and your allegiance. We talked about money and, and, and how that can convey it. But today, it's about your private life. It's about those things that are in the hidden parts of our spirit that go beyond any opinion or view of man. I've referenced this before, but some of you may have missed it. If not, it's worth noting again. Um, A couple months back, a group of friends uh, and my wife and I went to, there's a Russian monastery in Harper Woods. Who would have imagined that? That's just bizarre. They, they bought a section of residential property. And so on this one residential street, you're going to see the monastery um, for like three house lengths or two or three on either side. And then um, I think a couple of lots maybe behind in some way. But there's one house like in the middle of it, I guess wouldn't sell out. And so they got this one house surrounded by this Russian monastery. And as we walked up, they had um, posters on posts, uh, um, banners hanging on posts along the street uh, of the monastery saying, Jesus is Lord. And as we walked up, my wife commented on the blank spot of this, the place in the middle and says, I guess Jesus is Lord everywhere but here. <laughs> and in the same way, we're challenged. When we just said to worship God and him only, that there are parts of our life that only we know where Jesus is Lord, but not there, not in that place. In the context of maintaining population and controlling them by meeting their base needs, this was the world that that was soaked in that thinking that, that Jesus comes to. And Jesus tempts him, or rather Satan tempts him to be this king of bread and circus to meet the base needs of these individuals. And the same thing comes along today and, and we're tempted in a way, Jesus, feed us. Take care of our needs and, and, and all those things and then we will follow you. Show us signs, show us wonders, show us indicators that you're present in those things. And Jesus says, that's not how I'm gonna operate. The Romans did it to control their slaves. Jesus does what he does to draw brothers and sisters, first to himself and then to one another. He says in John chapter 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. He goes on in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he says to him, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? I'm not going to give you bread. Not of the type you're looking for. I'm not going to give you spectacle and celebration. Almost all elements throughout history, not just the Romans, but even today, is still built upon that. Next week, we celebrate one of the highest holy days of our culture. The Super Bowl. (laughs) And the gladiators will gather, and the spectacle be held out, and we'll all sit there and, and watch this mammoth struggle between good and evil. The Chiefs in San Francisco. You can pick which is good and which is evil. 
The Roman emperor says, at one point in time, I built a whole place and flooded it with water so that there were ships, literally. I created this whole spectacle so that people were entertained and therefore distracted. I fed them so their basic needs were met. And with that kind of distraction, that kind of diversion, they were quiet. They were able to be controlled. But Jesus rejects that whole concept and says, instead, I'm saying, I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm actually going to challenge you. Why am I going to challenge you in this way? Because I want you to be something different than what you would have experienced through anyone else who's claimed your allegiance at any other time. I want to bring you into the fullness of what you were meant to be. I want to bring you into true freedom. And true freedom is different. It's freedom to live as God intended us to, as image bearers at work restoring God's greater good creation. We as followers of Christ oppose certain things not because we are killjoys, but because we we embrace a bigger, fuller vision of the human person. In other words, we find ourselves against so-called freedoms. We think of freedom as merely the absence of restraint, the ability to live and do as we please. We come against those because they are not freedoms at all. They will not make us more human, but rather less human. Tim Keller makes a statement. He says, I've heard people say, I'm I'm checking out Christianity, but I also understand Christians can't do this, and the Bible says you're supposed to do that. You're supposed to love the poor. You're supposed to give up sex outside of marriage. I can't accept that. So people want to come to Christ with a list of conditions But the real question he offers is this. Is there a God who is the source of all beauty and glory and life? And if knowing Christ will fill your life with his goodness and power and joy so that you could live with him in endless ages with his life increasing in you every day. If that's true, you wouldn't say things like, you mean I have to give up, like, you know, sex or something for eternity and all that stuff. He goes on to offer this illustration. Let's say you have a friend who is dying of some terrible disease. So you take him to the doctor, and the doctor says, I have a remedy for you. If you just follow my advice, you will be healed, and you'll live a long and fruitful life. But there's only one problem. While you're taking my remedy, you can't eat chocolate. That's a deal killer for most of us right there. Now, what if your friend turned to you and said, forget it. No chocolate? What's the use of living? I'll follow the doctor's remedy, but I'll also keep eating chocolate which will negate the remedy. If Christ is really God, then all the conditions are gone. To know Jesus Christ is to say, Lord, anywhere your will touches my life, anywhere your word speaks and convicts me, I will say, Lord, I will obey. There are no conditions anymore. If he's really God, he can't just be a supplement. We have to come to him and say, okay, Lord, I'm willing to let you start a complete reordering of my life. And yet, many of us are not prepared to accept that or receive that. In fact, studies have shown that a lot of Christians, especially in the area of sex, are basically sexual atheists. They're going to practice whatever they're going to practice, irregardless of any belief in God, to let them touch that aspect of their lives. Submission to Christ is not subjugation like it was to the Roman emperor. 
Subjugation turns a person into a thing. It destroys individuality and removes all liberty. Submission makes a person become more of what God wants him or her to be. It brings out individuality. It gives him or her the freedom to accomplish all that God has for his or her life and ministry. Subjugation is weakness. The state takes care of me. I don't have to think or process or do a whole lot more beyond that. It's the refuge of those who are afraid of maturity. Submission is strength. It's the first step toward maturity and ministry. Have you ever heard of the poem Invictus? How many of you? Maybe this will help. Have you ever heard the phrase, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul? How many of you? Look it up sometime. It was a favorite poem of mine until I understood what it all meant. In 1875, a British poet named William Ernest Henley published a short poem that expressed one way to cope with life's circumstances. This poem was called Invictus. In popular culture, those last two lines I just referenced, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul, is how it ends. Usually they represent some kind of heroic, self-sufficient stand against evil and injustice, and that's why I embraced it. But as you examine it, you realize it means without submitting to God. In fact, it's a rejection of God and a, and a claiming of our own decisions and choices. The journalist Daniel Hannon called the poem, quote, a final and terrible act of defiance. The horror that's mentioned in the poem might indeed have awaited Henley, but he would go there on his own terms, leading the, leaving the spittle sliding down his maker's face. In other words, I'm going to die. That's fine. I'll do it on my own terms. I'm on you, God. I am the master of my fate. I make the decisions and choices. Nobody tells me what to do. For over 100 years, plus now, this poem has inspired people. In the 1980s, the poem encouraged former South African President Nelson Mandela through the dark days of his imprisonment. Years later, Clint Eastwood used it as the title for his popular film about the South African uh, rugby team, if you saw that movie, entitled Invictus. Sadly, it was also the influence, though, upon the Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh. He was responsible for the deaths of 160 men, women, and children and the injuries of 800 more. And he scribbled out the words of Invictus that he knew by memory and handed to the authorities on the last day before his execution, the moment before his execution. Sixteen years after Henley published Invictus, there was a British preacher called Charles Spurgeon, very well known. He offered another philosophy of life, one that I would offer also to you this morning. On June 7th, 1891, in the closing words of his final sermon, Spurgeon urged people to submit to a better captain for our soul. He said this, quote, every person must serve somebody. Bob Dylan was a prophet. We have no choice as to that fact. Everybody must serve somebody. Those who have no master are slaves to themselves. Depend upon it. You will either serve Satan or Christ, either self or the Savior. You will find sin, self, Satan, and the world to be hard masters. But if you wear the uniform of Christ, you will find him so meek and lonely of heart that you'll find rest under your souls. If you could see our captain, you would go down on your knees and beg him to let you enter the ranks of those who follow him. It is heaven to follow Christ. 
Ravi Zacharias, a writer that we support, said, faith is confidence in the person of Jesus Christ and in his power. So that even, and this is important, listen to this, please listen to this, please hear this. Is confidence in the person of Jesus Christ and in his power so that even when his power does not serve my end, my confidence in him remains because of who he is. That even when his power does not serve my end, my confidence remains because of who he is. Jesus comes into a world that knew only slaves and rulers. That was predicated upon feeding me or distracting me and entertaining me. And he comes and says, I will do neither. Not in the way that you want or expect. Because you're not slaves. You're men and women made in the image of God. And I call you as brothers and sisters. Follow me. Not because I feed you, not because I entertain you, but because of who I am. See the authority in which I walk. See the person in who I am. Because the reality is you have to serve somebody. You will serve somebody. But if you serve me, it's a completely different reality than those who would lay claim upon you. Jeremiah chapter 2 says, My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water. They've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Those would have been, been channeled, rock uh, dug out of. And, and when the rains fall, it would collect the water so they could hold it for a later time. But he says, you constructed cisterns that are broken so it can't even hold that. Don't be embarrassed to say that you screwed up. Come and say, my cistern's a mess. I need the refreshing rain of your spirit upon me now. James 4, 6 says he gives us more grace. He opposes the pride, proud, but shows favor to the humble. Hebrews 4, 7 says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. In 1 Kings, the people had gathered on Mount Carmel and, and Elijah, the prophet, comes before them and says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And they said nothing. They're just waiting so he has to call down fire from heaven before they find, oh my God, yes, God is God. But Jesus is saying there'll be no more spectacles. There'll be no more powerful elements that blow you away and convince you by force. And there'll be no bread. Instead, in the words of Proverbs, he just says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Have faith in me. Know who I am. Don't lean on your own understanding and in all your ways submit to me. Not subjugate. Submit. And I'll make your path straight. Rome only understood power. The people only understood slavery and superiority above it all. Satan tries to draw Jesus into being a king of bread and circuses. And Jesus rejects it. When the people want to make him a king, he walks away. When they come after him, he tries to take them deeper. And they can't grasp it. In the last two weeks, I've talked to you about your opinions 
allegiances, loyalties. We've talked about time and treasure and what that can mean. And this morning, it's very simply this. Beyond external allegiances and loyalties, beyond what you do with your time and treasure, what areas of your heart, what areas unseen by anyone else have you said, this is mine? I master this. This I can't submit this. I won't submit this. It's, it's either too painful of a consideration or too difficult or just too much a part of who I am. I don't know how. If God is the one who made us, if he is in fact God, if Jesus Christ is in fact the enfleshment of God, come to show us who God is and what he wants, if these words are true, then there can be no area of our life, hidden or public, that should be off limits to him. You will go to churches. You can go to another church right now. Thousands of people flock to these churches and they'll just tell you, give more money, you'll make more money. If you're not healthy and wealthy, then there's something wrong with your faith and, and just give us more money and we'll make it all right somehow. And you'll be told these lies over and over again. They'll be told, become a Christian and suddenly everything is great. You'll find the love of your life. You'll be fulfilled in your life. You'll feel healthy and wealthy and everything will be wonderful forever. And in some cases it may be true, but the reality of life is quite different. And Jesus comes to us in the midst of that reality. He says, you want to follow me? No bread, no circuses, no spectacle. That is not who I am. But I offer you life. In its deepest, truest sense, way beyond the spectacle when the stage is cleared in those lonely times that nobody sees, in the darkest moments you have, I will walk with you. And if you will follow me, then the fullness of who you were intended to be, we'll walk that through together. I'm going to ask in this moment, please, if you would just close your eyes and bow your heads to give privacy around. Do not click off. Just for a moment, I would ask two questions. One, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, you've had a misunderstanding of what it all meant. All you've seen is the arrogance and the loudness of those claiming to be Christians marching across the political platforms. But this morning, you're having an understanding of the lowliness of the Christ we serve, of the humility the love that he has for you. And you're prepared today to submit your life to him, not be subjugated, not a slave, a brother, a sister. If you're willing to repent of your sin and accept his salvation, if that's you today with no one looking around, just quickly raise your hand up before your God this morning now where you're at. Anybody else just quickly? And now to the second question. For those of us who are followers of Christ, your allegiance, your loyalty has been there. Maybe even your time and your treasure has been there. But there are sections of your life and of your heart that you know are not submitted. 
And maybe only you do know what that is. Maybe it's in your sex life. Maybe it's in your opinions and your views or your attitude. Maybe it's in your health. But this morning, by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you're drawn to an awareness that that area needs to have a standard raised, that the Lord is Lord here as well. If that's you this morning with no one looking around, quickly raise your hand up before God and own this today. Yeah, me too. The song said, the preacher in his spiritual pride, I don't have any. We come before our Christ. We come before our God. And we say we want Lord, for you to rule every part of who we are. This morning, we want your lordship. And Lord, for these individuals who for the first time now are even entering into that, we pray, Lord, your confirmation in their heart and spirit. We have to serve somebody. We will turn aside from bread and circuses to pursue the bread of life and to walk before your face. God, I pray in this moment that you confirm in hearts and minds your presence and your grace and your provision, Lord God, as decisions are made. The Roman emperors used bread and circuses to sedate and control. Jesus rejected that rise us up the emperors were jealous of their power Jesus freely grants that to those who believe 5,000 people followed him across the Sea of Tiberias but when all the conversation was done only 12 were left and even one of them Judas couldn't let go of his political ambitions and views not an easy thing to follow Christ. But he's the only one that has the words of life. He's the only one. What can we do? Father, I pray this morning that those who submit themselves to you, Lord, would find things rising up in their heart and mind not to become the master of their fate but as they submit to you as we submit to you that there'd be something that would rise in our spirit in fullness and in power that would see this world transformed and changed that even though you do not wield your power on our behalf that we will still follow you for who you are that though we are not fed bread or entertained by circuses that we will still pursue you God that every part of our life becomes submitted to you Shape us, I pray, as your people. Shape us as your church. In Jesus' name, we pray these things.